Welcome to the official ABA Law Student Podcast, where we talk about issues that affect law students and recent grads. From finals and graduation to the bar exam and finding a job, this show is your trusted resource for the next big step. You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of the ABA Law Student Podcast. I'm Meg Steenberg, a 1L at Syracuse University College of Law JDI program. This episode is sponsored by NBI. Taught by experienced practitioners, NBI provides practical, skill-based CLE courses attorneys have trusted more than 35 years. Discover what NBI has to offer at nbi-cms.com. Today, we are honored to speak with Jim St. Germain. Mr. St. Germain is the co-founder of PLOT, Preparing Leaders of Tomorrow, which is a nonprofit organization that provides mentoring to at-risk youth. He holds an associate degree in human services from the borough of Manhattan Community College and a bachelor of arts degree in political science from John Jay College of Criminal Justice. He is on the board of the National Juvenile Defender Center and was appointed by President Obama to the Coordinating Council on Juvenile Justice Delinquency Prevention. Mr. St. Germain is an author, storyteller, and motivational speaker whose work encompasses issues related to criminal justice, mentoring, mental health, substance abuse, education, and poverty. Mr. St. Germain is also the co-author of a newly released book, The Good Immigrant, and a memoir, A Stone of Hope, recently hailed by President Obama. Mr. St. Germain has written and co-directed Every Nine Hours, which tackles police shootings in the United States. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Meg. I really appreciate you having me, and I appreciate the great and undeserving introduction. Oh, I disagree. So very deserving. Truly an honor to have you with us to talk about your story and help provide guidance and wisdom to present and future lawyers and judges. And yours is a story that I feel needs to be heard. I finished your book, your memoir, A Stone of Hope, yesterday. Thank you. And your strength and determination, despite everything pushing against you, is is just so inspiring. I encourage everyone to read this. Let's walk through your journey. Let's start in Haiti, where you were born, because life there certainly sets the stage. Unimaginable, really, in so many ways. Yeah. Yeah. So as a kid growing up in Haiti, I, as you've mentioned, life was extremely challenging. I grew up with my dad and my mother left the family at a young age. Um, They were having domestic violence issues and she left. So my dad was left to raise the four of us on his own. And being a single dad, In Haiti, where resources are scarce, 70% of the population is unemployed. I grew up in a house where it was sort of like a thin foyer shack with one bed, and there was about nine of us in there. And so we were all on top of each other, no running water, no restrooms, and food was almost a luxury. So that was the first 10 years of my life. And at the same time, it was, in many ways, the best 10 years of my life Um, because there was a level of safety in Haiti that do not exist here for me. And I didn't know that at the time as a kid. There was also a community that 
regardless of who you were, we all belong to the same group of people. So anyone can discipline you, anyone can love you, anyone can mentor you, and anyone can feed you. Um, it was all about the collective and not the individual. So the, the idea of rugged individualism, which I think is a big part of the American um, way of life, was not necessarily true in Haiti. It was a community, it was collective. Some of my friends tell me that it was more like what a kibbutz would be in Israel, minus the resources. And as a kid, the one promise that was made to us was America. America was the place to be, the place to go. It was heaven on earth. That's how we saw it on TV when we watched Home Alone with Kevin, seeing that his hardest job was keeping Joe Pesci out of his $2 million homes. I thought that coming to this country, me and my siblings would have the same problems, that our main job was going to be keeping Joe Pesci out of our $2 million suburban homes. And when I landed here at a young age and I landed in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, the reality was completely different from what I saw on TV. I often say that I was promised home alone. Instead, I got the wire. And as a kid, mm. it's really challenging for you to come into a new country where now everything is faster, bigger. You were accustomed to being around everyone that looks like you, had the same as you, speak the same language, and understand the world the way you do, to now being in a world where in one apartment building, you can have 150 nationalities living in there on top of each other. And all of a sudden now there was drugs everywhere, there's guns everywhere, there's broken schools, there were police. And as a kid, none of this makes sense to your brain in terms of how you maneuver in that world and how you find safety and how you make it out of that trap. And that was especially true because I did not understand how the ghetto which I came into and most of the people that look like me live in, I didn't understand how it became to be. I didn't know how it was created. And because I didn't know how it was created, it was even harder for me to fight and trying to get through it and, and, and make it to the other side. And to recognize from your memoir, I think you said it was that five square blocks yeah. was also the extent of your knowledge. So you didn't even know what was through to the other side other than what you saw in a movie. Not at all. Um, as a matter of fact, when I got in trouble with the law and, and was accepted into a group home in Park Slope, which is literally a 10-minute walk, you walk through the park, you ended up on Park Slope, which is a predominantly wealthy white neighborhood. It was a completely different world to me. I had never seen that before. And as a matter of fact, even when I first got to Crown Street, I live on Crown and Nostrand, and right across the street, there was the Orthodox Jewish community. Right. So they were they were home ownership on that side. They seemed like they had control over their affairs. There were businesses booming. They had their own schools. They had their own world within our world. Right. So that stark contrast. Right. The disparity was was one of the first things that greeted me when I got to Crown Street. It was right across the street from me. And it was even harder to understand because we didn't have a relationship with the Orthodox community. It was a very tight knit community. So the idea of these two, the, the, the great divides in New York City was immediately apparent to me as soon as I got off the plane. So you recognize them as racial disparities as well or socioeconomic? Or how did you recognize that that's different from what I have? Did you see it as a racial issue at that point in time? You know, back then, Meg, I wasn't as aware 
Sorry, I'm calling you Meg. Meg. Um, I, wasn't as, I wasn't as aware of, of American history as I am now. Remember, I am from a country that is black and it was the first black independent nation on earth. And I grew up learning about black power, black sovereignty, black independence, black brilliance. Despite the poverty and the struggles, I always knew that power looked black to me as a kid. And we were taught that, and it was a proud history. We were taught that we were the first country to defeat the, the Napoleon really vicious army at the time. And that allowed me to carry a lot of pride with me, even though when things were tough, I knew that I came from a place of greatness. So when I got to the U.S., when I saw those disparities, I, at the time, did not think to myself, oh, it was because of race, but I knew that the people who had more across the street from me were white, obviously. Um, but I didn't fully understand the political aspect and the concept of whiteness at that time. It was just that, oh, those people are different. Not only they were white, but they were Orthodox Jews, right? So that's, that's a whole nother layer of um, complication for, 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 for 12, 11-year-old boy to understand. <laughs> You know, I had to make sense of the hats, you know, the, 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 so many things I didn't know. So, so in that sense, it was, it was the most extreme side of the two worlds in some ways, because it was right across from me, but there was no contact and no, no communication. I was only used or needed when it was Sabbath and they couldn't turn the lights on or the stove. And most of my friends would say no, but I would say yes, because I wanted to see inside of their houses. I wanted to see why they had more than we did. And so I was always a curious kid, which has been, I think to me, the most important gift that I possess is that I'm curious. I always want to learn. And so that, 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 that's what it was for me more so. I didn't understand it as I do now. So, you know, you mentioned that independent Black power that you grew up with in Haiti. Do you think right. that also helped you survive because you felt that independence and you didn't join a gang. You knew that that was, I think, as you said, why would I follow some stranger? I <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, yes, yes. And you know, you know what else it did, which I think was critical, in addition to that, to what you just referred, the leadership aspect. The other thing it did for me is I never had the inferiority complex, which a lot of African-Americans grow up with in this country. I mean, imagine this. If you're a young black kid in this nation, everything that looks powerful looks white and everything that looks powerless looks black, right? And that's your relationship. So the people that seems to be your oppressors, the police officers, you know, wherever they are, the people who are in charge of the institutions, they look white. Whereas for me in Haiti, I didn't have that. So in some ways, when I came here, I saw myself as equal to white people which then allowed me to open up a little bit more when I met like Amadi, or Christine, or Miss Olio, or Walton, and so on and so forth, right? Some of your because, mentors, yeah. Right, because in some ways I never closed myself off to, to those individuals because I didn't grow up seeing them as my oppressor for the first 10 years of my life, which I think counts, accounts for a lot. Yeah. You know, whether it was them directly or the system, but the bottom line is that I didn't grow up seeing that level of divide as a kid in Haiti. And I think that really allowed me to open myself up to learn about other people and other culture, and, and, and especially as I was going through the juvenile justice system. So let's back up just before that 
as you said in your memoir, you're in super tough situations every day where really survival is at its core. It's, the moment, it's really, I mean, your life is literally on the balance in the in the balance all the time, and that's not it's, it's not hyperbole to say that. I can I can certainly confirm that. And some of the things that I would have thought were potentially lifesavers, you felt placed a further target on your back. For instance, the free lunch system. Yeah. I think I think you said you'd rather starve than get in that line because it showed a vulnerability. Right. And the English as a second language classes, you wanted out of there as fast as you could because again, vulnerability. Some of the things that are systematically set up to quote unquote assist. Right actually don't and for someone like you and your situation where you are trying to survive. That's right. So one of the challenges I think with a lack of resources and poverty and oppression is that it restricts your ability to be your, the full version of yourself. And what I mean by that is I knew that we didn't have power where I grew up. So therefore we had to define what power meant to us as young boys and young men. And some of the things we find power in were completely nonsense, right? They were clothes, they were sneakers, they were status. They were the way you wear your hair, the way you wear that sneakers, the way you wear that shirt, who you know as a friend, whether you eat free lunch or not. If you eat free lunch, what does that say about you? It tells the other kids that you're poor. And who wants to be poor when everyone in that group is actually poor, right? <laughs> um, which is kind of ironic and weird in some ways. We all were poor, but you know, you didn't want someone to think that you were. And we didn't know that as kids, but I knew that the cool kids weren't eating lunch. The kids that weren't picked up on weren't eating school lunch. They had money to buy stuff from the vendor machine. And in my brain, I quickly realized that, okay, if I eat school lunch, then I become a target, right? Because I'm already a target. I'm an immigrant. I don't speak the language. I don't dress like all of the kids. I don't have some of the things they have. And then here I am standing on this line to eat lunch. And so now that is a visible marker of, oh, he is less than us. And when you are in an environment where everyone is trying to survive, right? There's a, there's a, there is a saying we use where I'm from. We call it the crab in the barrel mentality, meaning that if you put a bunch of crabs in a barrel, when one tried to leave, sometimes the other ones pull them back. Not because mm. they intentionally just wants to hurt the other crab, but it's just what they know, right? It's what they know. They're trying to pull themselves up themselves, but as they pull themselves up, they pull somebody else down who is on their way out. And so that is a very real thing where I grew up in Crown Heights because we didn't have anything. You know, we, we, we were really, really, really poor. And that is still the case today. So therefore, we had to create what power and status meant to us. And unfortunately, most of the time, it actually compounded our problems, didn't help us. Because we didn't have the tools, we didn't have the resources, um, we didn't have the roadmap. And so what you had is a bunch of 15, 14, 16-year-olds who have to grow really fast in this world and they have power dynamics issues playing out between them. And, and usually sometimes most of that issue and that violence stays within that small group, but every now and then it gets out of it. And that's when other people feel unsafe, but it's always playing out between those of us living in that environment. 
So you were, and you've used this word now a few times, even in this conversation and on often in your memoir, and you, you speak of things as gifts. Yes. One gift that many would not consider to be a gift is an arrest that happened for you right. four months before your 16th birthday. Is that correct? So you're 15, right. 16, right. you're treated as an adult in New York. Is that right. correct? Right. Well, we've fortunately, after years of fighting to change that, we were able to help New York raise the age, which they did. It wasn't a perfect bill, but now as we speak, most young people who are 16 and 17 are being tried as um, juveniles now because of our efforts to lower the age. And obviously that was huge for me because as you can imagine, if I was just 16, as you were just mentioning, I would have ended up in the adult system in Rikers Island and who would, who, who would know, who know where I would be today, right? We know what happened to Khalif Browder who had much of a innocent charge than I did, who ended up being tortured and killed at Rikers Island. So I saw that opportunity to join that effort and that fight as a very personal journey for me and as something I can pass on to the other young people coming behind me if they happen to make the mistake. And because you weren't an adult yet, you were able to take advantage of alternative or an alternate sentencing opportunity. Before we go into that, as after your arrest, is this your first exposure then to lawyers, defense attorneys, prosecutors, judges? Yes, my first my first exposure to the system in general. Lawyers, I mean, I didn't even know what a lawyer was or a judge or what they do and you know, where did they go to school? I, I didn't even know you had to go to law school to become a lawyer. So these are all things I would find out later on. So yes. And what did you your defense attorney is handed to you? Is that was that Christine? Christine Bella at first, yes. Your first impression. I mean, as you're standing there thinking, what? I'm thinking, what is this white woman knows about my life? You know, what is her job? What is, you know, why she's trying to help? Who's paying her? (laughs) Um, I didn't pay her. I didn't choose her. You know, I was just giving her. (laughs) Why does she care so much? But what I remember about Christine right away was that it was not about the intellect for her was about the heart. It wasn't about the brain. She understood that in order for the brain to follow, she must leave with the heart. That's how you help kids. Kids have to know that you care before they care how much you know, Um, especially kids who are coming from environments where they've been let down so many times by adults who are supposed to care for them and take care of them. And Christine, is naturally really gifted at that. She's just a people's person. She loves humans. And I sensed that as soon as I met her. On the first date, I knew that about her. And when she was getting ready to leave, well, I'll tell you a story. One day, I think I wrote about this. I was leaving her office and I think she may have asked me, how am I getting home? And I Matter of fact, we just said to her, well, I'm going to jump the turnstile. Well, that's, that's just what we did. We didn't have money. And she said to me, well, jumping the turnstile will bring you right back here. And so she gave me like three bucks, one for a, at that time we had tokens, <laughs> one for a token and one for a slice of pizza. And the truth is that most attorneys probably won't be able to do that. And I'm sure that $3 was out of her pocket. And I'm almost certain she's done that very same thing for at least 200 other kids. <laughs> That's just who she is. 
But the bottom line was right away, I knew that this person cared and was invested because the other thing is this, my encounter with white people at the time, that they were mostly cops, Mm -hmm. right? So I saw them as people whose job was it to uh, kind of like maintain my oppression, lock me up, beat me up, kill me, whatever they needed to do with me. That was my image outside of the Orthodox Jews. That was my image of white people, right? It was the cops. They were the one I came in contact with. So Christine was my first interaction with someone who was white, but on the other side of that. So they say that, you know, first introduction is everything. For her and and me, that was certainly true based on the circumstances which we're talking about. As expected from her, when it was time for her to leave the juvenile part of the work she was doing at Legal Aid, she said to me specifically, I want to hand you over to someone that I know would have your best interests at heart. And that's when she passed me on to Marty because she was leaving juveniles to go work with adults. And, and so that's when I met Marty, but Christine was my first attorney. And I think you said as well, you really felt as though you were treated as a human being and that that was, or was it the judge or that, that there was a time that you just felt they see me as a human. They're not seeing me yeah. as some statistic to put into the system, but rather someone who has a future. I mean, let's be honest. The law that <laughs> the law that 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 made sure that I went to the system was passed in the 1994 Biden and Clinton bill. That was the bill that that was responsible for my arrest and the judge having to send me away because it was crack cocaine. That was the reality, right? That was the law that did that. So I understand that the law wasn't designed to see humanity in black boys. And language like super predator and so many other languages that were used around the time this law was being passed certainly played a major role in the psyche of those who are in charge and in power in this legal system. And I saw it when I was a kid. I saw it as a staff member working with kids, and I see it every day today. I see kids go into a courtroom where it's almost as if the kids do not exist. The judges almost never look at them, talk to them. Everybody talks around them, talks about their cases. And interestingly enough, I always see this as a great tragedy because here is a child who is at the most vulnerable position in their lives, and here are these adults some trying to help them, some trying to get justice for the victims. And then there is the judge. All of them have major power, and most of them don't look like this kid. And I can argue that the way which they treat that kid, the way they look at the kid, talk to the kid, see humanity in the kids like they see humanities and their own kids who are growing up in the Upper West Side and Park Slope, the same humanity, the same humanity they see in, in, in rich white kids. If they can project some of that into our kids while they sit in a courtroom, while they go through this really cold and inhumane system, I think that is as valuable than the outcome of the case, if not more. Because it tells that kids one thing and one thing for sure is that you matter. And you are not your circumstance. And you are more than a docket number. 
And hence why I talk to you the way I do, hence why I look at you the way I do, hence why I address you the way that I do. And so I always see it as if, and this is hard to do, right? If, let's think about a legal aid attorney who is underpaid and have a ton of clients, mm-hmm. who's stressed, who's doing this work because they're passionate about it and it's not just for the money. And they barely have enough time to, to look at files and look at evidence and, and make an argument for some of the clients sometimes. It's hard because they have so many of these cases. And the idea that they can also make that kid feel like one of their own can possibly seem as a tough and a challenging, a challenging thing for them. And not every kid may be open for that, that exchange. However, I want to emphasize on the fact that those who are listening to this podcast, future lawyers, prosecutors, judges, whoever they may be, I think it's important for them to understand that the way which they treat that child is as important as the results they get in the legal process. And I believe that a big part of what helped me was whether it was at MS61 when I met Walton, who was one of my first mentors, what I got from Walton was that I knew I mattered to him. I knew that he loved me. I knew he wanted the best for me. So when Walton told me to do something, then I would listen to him, right? When he told me that was wrong, then I would listen to that because I knew that this man cared about me. And that process continued from Walton to Miss Olio, you know, to some of the guys I grew up with in the neighborhood, you know, to Christine, to Marty so on and so forth, the connecting tissue was that I've always felt that some of these individuals show more in me than just my docket number or the the crime that I was charged with. We are speaking with Jim St. Germain, co-author of The Good Immigrant and author of a memoir, Stone of Hope. We'll be right back. If you want to stay up to date on today's hottest issues, strengthen your knowledge with practical how-to courses, and learn the latest legal strategies and troubleshooting tips, then NBICLE has what you need. NBI courses range from basic to advanced and cover all legal disciplines. Learn online and on your schedule with our on-demand courses. Visit nbi-sems.com and save 50% on your next CLE course with promo code NBISTUDENT. And we are back with Jim St. Germain, co-founder of Plot, co-author of The Good Immigrant, and author of a memoir, A Stone of Hope. In your alternate sentencing opportunity, you were sentenced with the state to Boys Town. Right. Talk to us about how Boys Town led you. Really, I, I say how Boys Town led you, it, but it was so much of it was you also being... Right receptive to it. So I'm having a hard time wearing that because so much of this was you as well, but you had another opportunity to change things. Right. I'll tell you this, you, you said something yesterday during our conversation that I, I thought was, was telling. You said to me that, you know, a lot of this was because of your own strength and your own doing, which I agree with. And I also can see how someone else can flipped that and said, well, if you, Jim, were able to pull yourself up, quote unquote, by the bootstrap you never had, then every other kid from your neighborhood can do the same thing. 
So I'm always leery to not be the exception. And I want to, obviously, as a human who has an ego, I want to believe that I played a major role <laughs> in overcoming my challenges and my obstacles. And at the same time, I know that the environment is as crucial, meaning that the neighborhood, the level of resources that were available to us, the difference between Boystown and Park Slope was just this. In the neighborhood where I grew up, the medium income was about $15,000 a year. Just 10 minutes over to Park Slope, the medium income is about $95,000 a year. That's an $80,000 difference. That's the difference between what I saw in Park Slope, the clean streets, the clean homes, home ownership, equity, the extracurricular activities, the karate class, the gyms, the really um, healthy dog foods, um, the, the, the luxury sedans, the vacations. A lot of that was tied to the resources that was available in Park Slope. And so when I got to Boystown, Boystown had those resources available, in addition to the fact that I was in an environment now where I didn't have to worry about getting killed or being hurt. So when you have a young person who is struggling to overcome these obstacles, I think a combination between mentorship and self-will, right? The ability to look, look within and say, I want better. And also the tools and the resources which are available to them. I don't think it can just be one of those things. I think it's a combination of many things that helps a young man like myself. In Boystown, one of the things that did so well is they were able to bring all of those three things together. And so, for example, Boystown had a model where every behavior you exhibit would be attached to some sort of positive or negative consequence. So, for example, for this conversation I'm having with you, if there was a staff member around when I was in the, in the group home, the staff member would say, okay, Jim, uh, you'll earn a thousand positive points for speaking without cursing. Something as simple as that, mm-hmm. right? They would give me a thousand points for speaking without using a curse word. Now, why is that important? Because it incentivized me to use more vocabulary words and other words to describe my feelings, my anger, whatever it may be, without using curse words. And that thousand point was then added to, my, to the rest of the points that I had earned from other things. And then at the end of each day, we would total it up. And if you have 10,000 more positive points than negative points, then you have what we call your privs, your privileges, which then would allow you to have things like cookies and ice cream and to go to the park or go play basketball in the backyard. If you didn't have enough positive points, then you would just have your regular dinner you have a fruit snacks, you would have your vegetables, your water, and then you would have to go to bed. So there was an attached incentive to positive behavior and also negative consequence. Whatever we did was counted in a way that also always gave you a chance to come back. So if you earn negative points and you accept the negative consequence, you will always earn half back. And that was extremely important because psychologically, you want a kid to believe that they can overcome this deficit. And Boystown was really masterful at that. And they hired all the people who loved kids and cared about kids. So Issa and Damon 
were the parents that I lived with. They had two daughters themselves, two, um, two infant daughters at the time when I got to the house. And then there was myself and five other boys who were from other parts of New York City. And we all were living under the same roof in Park Slope, Brooklyn. And the environment they created for us was one that every child should have, but we only had after we got in trouble with the law. So in the book, Meg, I describe this thing where I call it that I learned quickly when I got to Park Slope that the ghetto which I grew up in was not a natural phenomenon, right? That it was designed because there's no way these two neighborhoods can be 10 minutes apart and they have completely different realities. Unless someone believed that the neighborhood which I'm from is inherently violent or inherently doesn't want to do well. And so I understood that right away when I got to Park Slope and I wanted that. I wanted the things that I saw in Park Slope and I wanted them and I didn't want the cops to be chasing after me to, after, I, after I, I, I acquired them. And so that was a major part in the changing, the mindset, changing the mindset in terms of from what I saw that I wanted back in Crown Heights versus what I wanted when I got to Park Slope. And that introduction and exposure to college education and you went on to earn a college education as well. And what struck me was that you started it there, but to continue it, you graduated from there and you had, you went back to all the possible temptations of the neighborhood, same apartment with your family, right. same neighborhood you grew up in, same, right. well, many friends who are right. still doing the same things that got you into trouble. Right. Right. How did you push through that? The key word there, which I always like to emphasize on when I, right or talk about this is exposure. One of the things I believe is, and this is not my quote, I'm sure I got it from somewhere. Maybe I make it up, I made it up, I'm not sure. Um, but I strongly wholeheartedly believe this, that a child cannot be what they can't see. No child can. I don't care who you are, where you're from, what the color of your skin is, what your income, you know, your socioeconomic status is. A child must be able to see what they want to be in this world, which is why representation is so important. And so one of the things Park Slope and being in that group home and having those mentors in my life did for me is they exposed me to things. And one of those individuals was Issa Sedaniel, the woman who I live with in the group home. You know, she would leave often to go to class and I didn't know why she was going to class. In my brain, I thought that if you're an adult, you don't go to school anymore. Like once you become an adult, school is done. And I remember saying to her, where are you going? And she turned around to me. She said, I'm going to school. I said, why are you in school? You're an adult. She laughed and she said, I'm in college. And I said, what's that? And she stopped. And then <laughs> I often say that one of the things you must have to touch kids is you must know how to market things. And so I said to Issa, what is college? Now, I may have heard the word college before, but I wasn't in the right mind frame to actually hear it the right way and let it seep in and know that's something I wanted. She said, well, she puts her bag on the table. She was rushing for class and she sat down. She said, sit right across from me. I sat across from her. She said, well, college is this place where you go. She said, if you're poor, the government will help you pay for it. And if there's money left over, they'll send it to you. So check, I checked that. She said, you get to make your own schedule. 
check. I've always wanted independence and power, right? When you grow up dirt poor like I did, the first thing you learn in life is that you want as much option as you can possibly have. So I checked that box. And then she said, most importantly, you'll be outnumbered by beautiful young women. And I was like, where do I sign up? <laughs> right? Financial aid, extra check. That's like 1500 in my pocket. I get to make my own schedule. I can go to school in the morning, lunch, night, check. And then I'll be outnumbered by beautiful young women, which is what she said to me. And I wanted to be in college. And that was strategic on her part, right? She knew what would, what would speak to me around that time. Mm-hmm. At this point in my life now, you don't have to sell me on those points anymore, right? You can just <laughs> tell me I'm going to go and buy textbooks. And I'm like, okay, I want to go. But at that time, that's how she sold it to me. And I said to her, you know, I would love to come to school with you one day. She said, oh, you can actually come and sit in the class with me. And the following week, I remember, actually, it was the Thursday. She had class every Thursday at around 6 o'clock, right around, you know, this time. She would be leaving. And so one day, the following week, I left with her. She took me to, to the campus at BMCC in Tribeca, right on the West Side Highway on Chambers Street. And I remember just feeling like this was a safe space for me to be in. Like this was a place where I can come and try all of the things that were bothering me, all of the things that I'd learned about, about this country and my own experiences. I can come and play these things out here in this environment and it would be safe. And so I wanted that. And that was one of the um, driving forces behind me going to college. So if you had an and you successfully went through all of that. You now you co-founded a nonprofit plot, yep. mentoring at-risk youth. Yep. By the way, now we call them at promise. Oh. I've always struggled with the term. Yeah. yeah. Because that language matters, right? I try to use strafe based language. And if I'm telling these future attorneys that language matters and humanity matters. I think the words we use when we describe kids are crucial and important. And I know that at risk is more of a, um, I would say, a more of like a bureaucratic jargon in some ways. Mm-hmm. But I've been struggling with it for a while. And recently, I proposed to the board that we use at promise because I think that we invest more. Usually, humans invest more in things they think have possibility of becoming something great as a future. And I think at promise, obviously, states that clearly. But to answer your question, when I started working in the system, I thought that my experiences as a, as a young man who's been there, who understand our kids in the world which our kids come from, and the circumstances which they have to overcome and the challenges, I thought I was going to be able to walk into the juvenile justice system and just snap my fingers and just speak to them and it would change their lives. You know, I was young, in some ways naive. I didn't understand that a lot of what they were facing had more to do with circumstances which they inherited, you know, like structural racism and poverty and the fact that they've been in segregated schools all their lives, redlining. The resources that are available in Park Slope and the Upper West Side, all these wealthy white neighborhoods are not available in the the world which I came from. And so I said to myself, okay, the reality is this. I cannot change all of these kids' lives. I don't don't have, you know, I'm not worth 80 billion like Bloomberg, 
So I can't go to every family and say, hey, I'm going to remove you out of the projects and give you a better life economically. I knew that wasn't possible. So, and I realized that the talking and the work that I was doing, that it wasn't working fast enough. My kids are dying, you know? From the time I started doing this work, which is about the age of 18 to now I'm 31, I've lost at least 30 young men that I've personally sat across from and had dinner with, who's been gunned down. At least 30 that I've worked with, not even friends. That would be a tragedy if 30 kids from Park Slope had been murdered. That would be a tragedy and we would do everything we can possibly as a city to make sure it doesn't happen again but it's happening every day in the neighborhood which I grew up. And I felt powerless, I felt angry, I felt as if I was played and I let these kids down. And one thing about me is that I'm always looking for action-orientated things. Like if something is wrong, I don't care about what you think won't work. I I want us to work on what you think will. You know, I, 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 I'm not into finding a problem in every solution. I'm into this is wrong. This is not working. This is killing these kids, my kids. What can we do to make a difference, right? That's, 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 that's what I've always believed in in life. And so at that point, I said, okay, what was the most important thing that happened for you, Jim? I was having a conversation with myself. And the answer was that it was exposure. That was the most important thing I think that Mm -hmm. happened for me as a kid going through the system was that I met people like Walton, like Mario, like Miss Olio, like Christine, who exposed me to things. And when, once I was exposed to these things, I wanted those things. I knew that there were more outside of the five block radius, which I grew up in because back then I didn't know that. And so Immediately, I said, okay, what does that mean? For me, it was mentorship. That's what it was. That was the word. People who were looking out for me, mentoring me. And so I called up Christine and Marty, and I told them I wanted to mentor kids. And I didn't know how I was going to do it. I had no clue about what a 501c3 status was, bylaws, and nonprofit, and all of that stuff. I, it's not my strength. I had no clue. I didn't know anything about that. But Christine, who is... Yeah, she's, she's something else. You can say anything to her, the most impossible stuff, the weirdest thing, and she'd be like, yeah, let's do it. And that's one of the things I love about her. So when I told her this, she was like, okay, let's do it. And I didn't know the amount of work that was going to come. Uh, and one of my closest friends, Edwin Raymond, who is a police officer now, which you guys should check him out. He has a documentary on Hulu. It's called Crime and Punishment which I think is extremely crucial and important for any future lawyers or prosecutors. Um, But Edwin also grew up with me and he was one of the co-founders of PLOT. He understood the issues um, and he was already working as a police officer trying to do his best. And so me, Edwin, Marty, Christine, Judge Danoff and so many others, um, Susan and Suzette Brown and so many other good people came and we invited them to Dr. Brown's house. I remember that day, it was about eight years ago, November, eight years ago. And we ordered some Haitian food and it was about eight of us. And that's how POT became. And so we've been mentoring young people who are 
who parents are incarcerated or who just struggling throughout the city. The same same young people, which many of those of you listening to this podcast will be working with. And so that's how plot became. So as we, in this season, and as we conclude this conversation, there are a couple more things I just want to, you, throughout this, continue to speak of gifts and gifts in your world. Right. How has that word right. changed? What is the biggest gift today to you? My son. I have a seven-year-old son, Caleb. It's the greatest gift. And it's the greatest gift. It's also the greatest fear in this country. And I like to describe him as, imagine, imagine having your heart cross the West Side Highway. That's what it's like to be a Black father in this country, is to know that your heart is walking in between some of the most dangerous traffic that there is in this city, in this country. And for no other reason than the fact that he's a black boy. That's the reality you come into in this country. And that is terrifying that my beautiful son, as soft, as gender, as kind, as everything that he is, most of that do not matter when people see him. All they see is a black boy. And they assign all sorts of things to him, including the willingness to kill him and not provide any justice. And... Even saying those words now is really painful. It's tough. But that's the reality. And he's my greatest gift. And my goal is to be able to work hard enough to give him options to leave this country. And to know that blackness is not hated everywhere. Yeah, he's my greatest gift. Hmm. So one final thought, I mean, we could go on forever, but one final thought from you. This is... Um, from you to all of us again, your final professorial moment to um, <laughs> one note for all the present and future lawyers out there. To be what you needed at your lowest moment. I want young, these young lawyers to think about the lowest moment that they've had in their lives or that they will have at the lowest moment of your life what would you need? What do you want? What do you need? And that thing that you want and need at your lowest moment in life is what you out to give our kids every opportunity you get, whatever side you're on. If that can't happen, then we're in trouble. Powerful. Thank you. Jim St. Germain, co-author of The Good Immigrant, author of the memoir, A Stone of Hope. I actually have to pause here for a second because that is from the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Real quick, your inspiration for that. Yeah, yeah. The, um, while I was writing the book, I was also going back and forth to Capitol Hill to work and advocate for a bill called the Better Option for Kids Act. And the Better Option for Kids Act would diverse money from the legal system into schools, education, youth employment, Pretty much when people say defund the police, that's what they mean, to change money over from ballooning police departments to things that we know work, right? We know what works. It's the same thing every white neighborhoods have, resources. And so I was on, on Capitol Hill advocating for a bill similar 
as I was writing this book, and it was about four, five, it was about, no, it was about six years ago. And the bill was sponsored by Senator Chris Murphy, really decent guy, and Congressman Bobby Scott. And the bill was introduced and the bill died in committees. The bill didn't even get a chance to make it out of the committees. And I, I was young, I was about 20, maybe 25. And I could not believe for the life of me that someone would be against a bill that was to help kids and children. I just could not make sense of it. Like who, who doesn't want to help kids? And I remember being crushed. And at the same time, I literally, as I was testifying in Congress, my phone vibrated and I looked down, it was a text that one of the kids that I was working with was just shot and killed. And then here I am sitting in front of the most powerful men in the world, asking them to see those kids with humanity and invest in them. And the answer was no. Now I was, I was really down and um, angry. And it was also beautiful, like, I think it was September. I remember it was a little chilly, not super cold. And I walked over, I always love walking on Capitol Hill. And that particular day, I decided that I was going to go over Dr. King's monument. And I didn't know where it was. I just kind of like, I was asking people along the way and people guided me towards it. And I got there. I was the only person. There. As soon as I got there, I looked up on the side of Dr. King's monument in D.C. A quote stated, out of a mountain of despair, a stone of hope. And in that moment, that's exactly what I needed. And I remember writing about that. And at the time, we were going to call the book Bending Towards Justice, which is also Dr. King's speech. And the editor was like, my editor, Jonathan Jail at HarperCollins said, actually, I think the book is called A Stone of Hope. Hmm. I think that might be the title. And I was like, hmm. And I thought about it. I read the quote and I was like, yeah, that's, that's the story. That's this journey. So that's how we came with the title. Hmm. Well, thanks. I just wanted to go back and, and revisit that because I knew that there was an inspiring story behind that as well as everything else in your world. So yeah. again, thank you, Jim St. Germain, co-author of The Good Immigrant, author of the memoir, A Stone of Hope. Thank you for joining us. Yours is a story of hope and how we can all contribute to a better world, no matter what role we play in that. And thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Law Student Podcast. I'd like to invite you to subscribe to the ABA Law Student Podcast on Apple Podcasts. You can also reach us on Facebook at ABA for Law Students and on Twitter at ABA LSD. That's it for now. I'm Meg Steenberg. Thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find us on Twitter and Facebook, or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. Remember, U.S. law students at ABA-accredited schools can join the ABA for free. Join now at AmericanBar.org forward slash law student. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.